Okay, well, here we go. Today is Sunday, December 2nd, 2018, and this is episode 230 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Jerry. How are you, kind sir? I'm doing awesome. How are you? I'm good. I'm realizing we're heading fast into the Christmas season, and I have not yet even thought about Christmas shopping. That's not so good. No, no. And I need to know what size pajamas your llamas wear so I can, you know, get them something uh, I nice. Will, uh, I, will, I will go do measurements. Get Thank back you. to you. Good, good. So have you started your Christmas shopping? Um, by me. <laughs> yes, actually, I have. Uh, we're, have we're, we're almost done. <laughs> have you delegated that to... Uh, it's it's Mrs. La- Jerry. It's largely delegated. Yes, it's largely you know, delegated. Now that I'm married, I might have to look into that. <laughs> it's a, anyway. It's a, it's a good deal, man. It is. It is. So, anyhow, uh, welcome back to the show. Thanks for listening to uh, to everyone. Um, so, just to, before we get into the stories, a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on the show are ours, and still, and for always. Uh, do not represent those of our employers. But for a reasonably sized fee, they could, could represent, they could represent they could. yours. <laughs> we can be bought. Just no one's offered but, enough money but, yet. But but have not yet. Right. That's right. We need to have like, we. you know how they have the, uh, what was the, um, uh, the, the warrant canaries? We need to have like the shill canary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Until now, no one is paying us to make any comments on this podcast. Once we stop saying that, well, you can infer what you want. <laughs> All right. So uh, first story tonight comes from Ars Technica. And um, for anybody who pays attention to what's going on, this uh, this was quite the story last week. Title is Wi- Widely Used Open Source Software Contained Bitcoin Stealing Backdoor. Um, so, so there's a uh, there's a JavaScript library called EventStream, and uh, it, it's apparently fairly popular uh, piece of code. Allegedly, with uh, a, a, around two million downloads, including uh, Fortune 500 companies and startups and and whatnot. Uh, and and so what what happened? And boy, this is such an awesome story. <laughs> In a bad way, um, <laughs> the the uh, the maintainer of this event stream apparently uh, became over overworked in his personal life or overloaded in his personal life and could lo- no longer uh, maintain it. And so, someone in the community reached out and offered to take it over. And so, um, you know, I, I guess there wasn't a strong authentication of who was taking it over. And uh, and and so the the um, you know, the, the person who I guess created the package handed it off to this um, you know this vol- this new volunteer and uh, which by the way happens a lot in the open source community cur- this is not out of the ordinary it is not absolutely kind of how that community is built absolutely so. absolutely 
And, um, you know, but you, you have to think that a lot of these open source packages can endure for a long time. And, you know, any given person's life situation changes from year to year. I mean, even sometimes from month to month. So um, this is, like you said, not not surprising and not uncommon. Uh, but what was uncommon is that the person that took on uh, ownership of this didn't have the purest of intentions. And and so over the course of a couple of, apparently a couple of months, made some changes to the event stream module and, uh, and, and uh, including incorporating a uh, dependency module called um, flat, I think it was flat map stream, which was actually encrypted. And, uh, and, and so this apparently all happened pretty, uh, you know, pretty quietly and not, not, I guess nobody noticed until uh, about six or seven weeks ago when someone raised on the GitHub forum uh, the, the question, and I love, I just love the, um, uh, the subject of the issue that he opened. It was, I don't know what to say. Yes. Yeah. If you read the actual GitHub back and forth, it's, it, it's amazing. That's all I'll it, say. It, it just really is amazing. Yes. Uh, and yeah, go on. I, I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm at a loss myself. Yeah, it was, um, it, it really is a very good read. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's enlightening. It's entertaining. It's sad. You, you know, it's kind of like watching, uh, um, you know, a, a an eventful movie, you know, but it's, but it's actually real life. So, <laughs> so, um, anyway, the, the, uh, there was a, a lot of consternation, especially for a little while, because nobody really understood what this, um, you know, what this flat map, uh, stream was actually doing because it was encrypted. Although eventually somebody unrolled it and figured out that, in fact, it was a uh, none other than a cryptocurrency wallet uh, stealer thing, and it targeted a very specific uh, uh, wallet. Uh, actually, I should say a wallet company. Yeah, this is so. To get this straight, this guy won his way, wormed his way into maintaining this small little piece of code. In this larger library, just by asking, by the way, like yeah. just sending an email saying, "Hey, can I take, can I take that on?" And as an aside, when this started to get unraveled on the the GitHub message train, the, the, the various other people are going, "Let me get this straight. You didn't want to maintain it anymore, and so instead of just putting out a notice that it was deprecated or whatnot, you just handed it over to some random person, and then got locked out of it yourself." Correct. <laughs> and they were they were a little annoyed at that. So, so this random bad guy starts slowly inserting this malware to target a very specific company, even though this this code is used by millions. Correct. It it only it only launched, and and the hypothesis is that it it went un undetected for so long because it only it, it's it's intended only to activate when it is part of this cope that this uh, bitcoin wallet made by copay when it's run on the computer of a copay customer so not even on copay's you know copay's infrastructure itself but 
you know, the, the, the intention, the intended chain of events here is that the bad guy inserts this, uh, this, you know, backdoor as it were into event stream, event stream gets rolled up into this copay Bitcoin wallet, which copay then turns around and distributes to their customers their customers install it on their computers and use that to manage their Bitcoin wallets. At that point, this encrypted payload is uh, is designed to intercept the private keys and divert the money to a Bitcoin wallet of a of a, a person or account living or residing in uh, Malaysia, which is just amazing. And, and by the way, you know it's it's. On the one hand, it's a pretty narrow attack, but on the other hand, you could kind of think that it's that's just happenstance. Right. It, it could have been far more widespread or far more impactful. Or there, <laughs> it's a scary thing, right? It's, this pretty much is a supply chain attack. We, we I think we can agree with that. But it's weird how. It feels like a whole lot of effort and a whole lot of time going into one very small target. Uh, and But kudos, by the way, to the GitHub community for this particular package, sort of going, wait, this is weird, and sort of figuring this out. But then it makes you wonder how more often is this happening in other packages and other repos and other open source projects that nobody's discovered. Yeah, cor- correct. So that's, by the way, that's a concern I have. And, you know, it, it kind of countermands a lot of the um you know a lot of the stated optimism or, or the stated benefit of open source although i won't say you know entirely so where where because it's open source it's you know everybody has the opportunity to look at it and therefore you know it's intrinsically more secure but that actually only holds true if other people actually look at the code and and understand the code and uh, you know, I, I think it's this is an example where that doesn't always happen, uh, it, at least reliably so. Especially when people are developing very narrow parts of the code train. Yes. Uh, and committing very narrow parts, and maybe nobody's looking at the whole. Right. Yeah, this is interesting. And, it, you know, fundamentally, it seems like an obvious statement, but there's no guarantee that someone who's working in an open source project is not malicious. Correct. Correct, and you know, so I, I got to thinking, in, in kind of kind of broader scale, one of the I, I think one of the challenges, especially in the open source community, but you know, even even in the commercial software community, to some extent, you know, the the, the importance of any given piece of software can change really dramatically on a on a dime, you know, and and so if you if you are uh, you're writing something that's novel and um you know or maybe even not so novel but you know some some set of circumstances arises where your piece of code gets rolled into something that's really popular you know you, you may you may not be in a um i mean i just worry about the code quality and the ability to maintain software that um you know th- that was never really intended for things that were that important you know from from a code quality perspective from a you know an ongoing maintenance perspective uh you know that those sorts of things so it's um 
you know, I'm not I'm not saying open source is bad or or you know worse or better than closed source. I think they both have pros and cons. Uh, but you know, I think this is ju- this is in a data point where I think we have to recognize that there's you know that there's there's a hole in the bucket here that we have to be aware of. So. And is now a good time to announce your new project to audit open source repositories for hostile code being injected? Absolutely, that's right. With the with the blockchain, correct? Absolutely. And it's only two million dollars per blinky box. Correct. That's right, and it runs in the cloud. Yep. Anyway. <laughs> Now, it's a crazy start. I, I don't even know if we're doing a really great job explaining this weird chain of events, but it's well worth reading it. Uh, you know, Again, this is an Ars Technic article, um, and I'm sure we'll post the links, but it's it's pretty crazy. And I got to think more of this stuff's going on. Yeah. yeah. But by the and, way, the, uh, the, the Bitcoin wallet company initially, by the way, said that they didn't uh, they, they were un- they were unimpacted by this uh, and you know because they said that they hadn't released anything with uh, with an impacted version well uh, how would they know with bitcoin prices falling so dramatically they're probably all killing themselves <laughs> it's jumping out of windows true well, that um, was harsh that was yeah, harsh that was, me. that was pretty pretty harsh um you know the other thing i'll say is that this only this doesn't only happen to open source we saw this recently with closed source and, oh absolutely and, yeah so we're not picking on this whole problem is just a little sort of discovered in the open and and this whole discovery and reaction happened in the open because it was on GitHub, and it, which makes it more interesting for us to dissect. But this is certainly not a, an exclusive problem to open source projects. No, but I think it, I think there is a um, I, I think that the way in which this one happened is not this. It's not something that's very likely to happen in a closed sourced um, context. Because I mean, quite literally, the, the 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 bad guy here emailed the maintainer and said, "Hey, can I?" you know, can I take over responsibility for this package? <laughs> and they said, sure. And but, I mean, is there is there anything wrong with that? No, I mean, no, is no, it no. I, upon, I guess what I'm on, saying is that I, I it, it's just that that sort of... Yeah, that, that's the interesting twist on this. Yeah, that wouldn't and happen in a, in a closed-source world, I guess that was my point. Probably not. But I'm also not saying that these open-source repository guys, you know, need to vet... <laughs> they hand off their but this is a tough problem and it's it a is. weird problem and uh, yeah. yeah well i i actually think um you know the the whole concept and, and by the way i don't know if this is like a, a you know shark attack type thing where you know we're we're just seeing we're seeing it's it every, novel it's getting press yeah every time it happens now it, it's it's getting reported on you know but the supply chain type attacks are do seem to be happening more and more you know we had the you know the really novel NotPetya type attack, and we've seen all sorts of of similar ones, both open source and and closed source. But you know, I I think open source may be um, in some ways more vulnerable to that, and you know, kind of going forward. And so they may, um, I mean, I think I think closed source companies have had uh, their hands full with you know maintaining. The, the secrecy of their intellectual property for a long time. Um, and, and, I, and so I, I'm not sure that the threat scenario is, is changing dramatically for them, but I think for the open source community, I, I suspect it is, it is becoming um, more important 
for the community to come up with some some way of defending against these types of attacks because I think it's it's it does seem to be happening does feel like it's happening more often and I don't know if that's real or not. But w- by the way, the one thing I, I just to finish the earlier thought. Oh, uh, Copay said initially that they were not affected, but then they later recanted that and said that actually uh, they did release uh, a couple of different versions of their wallet that had the uh, the backdoored code in. And so they, they actually have some specific advice on um, the, the sequence of events. Basically, they want you to upgrade to the uh, version 5.2.0 wallet and then transfer all of your money uh, to a different Bitcoin address, which I, I assume they want it to be yours and not somebody else's. But I'm sure somebody else would be happy to take your Bitcoin. If <laughs> I'll be happy to publish my address for you. Yes. I'll keep it safe. Absolutely. You'll polish it every night. All right. <laughs> uh, so moving on to the uh, next story. This one comes from Krebs on Security. The other major news this past week was related to Marriott's announcement that the uh, Starwood Hotels uh, uh, chain, <laughs> I guess their 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 uh, database of, um, yeah, it's, it's the reservation database. I'm not yeah. really sure. Uh, was yeah. was compromised over the course of apparently four years. Yeah, four years. Four years. It's a long time. There's so many questions I have. So many. Yeah, being a being a Marriott uh, person yourself, I would imagine this is uh, near and dear to your heart. <laughs> well, fortunately, I typically have stayed at Marriott proper, uh, and not too many of the Starwood properties. Though I probably have at some point. I, I, I I've traveled a lot, so there's a very good chance that. You know, my information. So what leaked was name, mailing address, phone number, email, passport number, Starward preferred guest account number, date of birth, gender, arrival departure information, res date, and com- communication preferences. So the one that really concerns me is passport number, but I don't know that I've ever personally saved my passport number on any of these, but I, I don't know. I might have to assume I can. But, you know, that's – that is another great chunk of information for bad guys to use for targeted attacks. And, uh, you know, you wonder, well, how useful is all this? Well, if I'm going after certain executives at certain companies, what is a wonderful way to start that is to get all sorts of good details from something like, oh, a hotel reservation system. Yeah. By the way, just to carry on your, what you were saying about the, <clears throat> the type of data, they said that uh, customer payment card data was protected by encryption but the company can't rule out the possibility that the attackers also obtained the encryption keys. Oh, so it is, it is unknown whether or not, uh, apparently the, the, the payment data was there. It's just that it was encrypted, but they don't know if, uh, you know, I guess it's not hard to imagine if an attacker is active on your network for four years, that they may have an opportunity to, uh, to find those keys. So right up front, we'll say, we don't know what the attack was. We don't know how they got in. We don't know how they got detected. Yeah, so what what we do know... boy, do I want to. (laughs) What we do know is is what they stated publicly, which is that that some security tool uh, detected, uh, triggered some alert, which caused them to to investigate. Yeah. 
I missed that piece. There's a whole bunch of a uh, whole bunch of different stories, uh, but if you read the statement from Marriott right up front, they say that some uh, that an internal security tool uh, triggered an alert, which caused them to investigate. Now, it's kind of interesting because um, you know Starwood and Marriott have had a kind of a long train over the past couple of years of security incidents, in particular one back in 2015, if memory serves, and it's actually referenced in this. Uh, Krebs article from an article that Krebs wrote at the time about Starwood, who was wrestling with a, uh, a a breach, which they believed at the time only affected the payment terminals of um, of Starwood restaurants and bars. I think this yeah, memory their, their POS systems in their in their in hospitality. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and so it's it's unclear if I mean because if you think what well, was it's apparently the actor's been active for four years and which which would mean that they were active at the time of that breach back in 2015 it's unclear if they're if they're related or not yeah it it makes me wonder too and somehow i had missed that piece in the in the original article about that they did do an internal detection which picked it up makes you wonder if they were doing like an eval of something new makes you wonder if they had mis reconfigured something or deployed something new Mm -hmm. i'm also curious Four years is a long dwell time. We get that. But I'm curious how they figured out. They must have figured out when the initial intrusion was. And what's funny is a lot of companies don't keep logs longer than 90 days. So it's kind of interesting. They could go back four years and pinpoint it. Correct. Now, that could yeah. that could very well be because they had, um, they had that incident back in 2015. And it makes me wonder if possibly they had, had held on to data at the, you know, from from that time for um you know f- i don't know for legal reasons or or what have sure. you and so so it's or, it's possible that they had some of that as a result of the the previous incident or they just keep logs a long time which is good or or that absolutely now you know we saw we saw a similar type of of thing kind of what along the lines of what you were saying with equifax where you know they they recognized that one of their security tools was not functioning properly and once they fixed that tool then they suddenly detected uh, the activity of the bad actor so it's you know that that's not I, we we know it happens i mean we just had a, a good example of that not too long ago with equifax um you know and and also by the way it's not hard to believe that especially a company like starwood who's had you know problems in the past they've prob they're probably continuing to improve their security and you know one of the one of the unfortunate parts of improving your visibility is that you sometimes find stuff that you didn't know about before and then people freak out and you're like but the whole point was to improve our okay <laughs> right why, why am i being punished for finding new things that we wanted to find that's exactly right stop flogging me no, that's good. That's very true. When you start rolling out new visibility tools, no matter what it is, and your executives haven't been well prepared, they will start freaking the hell out when you suddenly start seeing new things. Yeah. And you like, let's just, you know, anytime you increase your visibility, uh, you start finding things that you didn't, you know, didn't know about. And some of it may very well be normal behavior. It may be just the norm you don't know about yet. Uh, so... 
or maybe something like this. That's the tough part when you start deploying new security tools. Is this a false positive? Is this a false negative? Is this normal and we need to tune it? Or is this really something bad? Uh, depending on what type of alert, this looks pretty straightforward. Something accessing a, a database. But yeah, it's uh, we have a weird perverse incentive with how a lot of people react to security. That you see people making, I think unintentionally bad decisions because of the way that we react when we find out bad news. Well, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, if you, if you look at like, um, a a lot of the data, even the data breach laws are, are lined up to, you know, report the breach within a certain amount of time of detection, right? There's, there's very, I'm not actually aware of any uh, of any regulation that says that you actually have to detect a breach. It's just that you have to report it within a certain amount of time of when you do detect it. And so it does kind of create this perverse incentive because you know if you do detect it, now you're obligated to report it. And if you don't, uh, if you don't report it, you know that is you know minimally going to um, you know to raise your your penalty, uh, but also could create criminal uh you know some criminal issues for you depending on you know jurisdiction and the type of data and whatnot um so so yeah you're you know you're you you know it's interesting about that too just very quickly i just think about this all of the internal communications and hand-wringing and lawyers and media um handling relation folks all got to get a say before you go public with this too yet you're on the clock so it all like once again, have a plan ahead of time, first off, because uh, this is going to happen. Uh, you know, and, and you guys will hear, we're not, we're not ripping on Marriott or Starwood. Because one, we don't know the details. But two, a lot of people get breached. It sucks. But a lot of people get breached. Yeah, but by the way, like, this was a pretty awful week for, um, f- for breaches. I think Dell announced one. Amazon announced a breach right before um, Black Friday. Uh, you know, there there were several others that are escaping my mind right now. So I mean, it's it's and this is kind of the point of the next story we're going to talk about. But this is becoming really, a really, <laughs> I mean, it's been a big problem for a long time. But um, <laughs> well, are we getting to a point now where we're almost normalizing the risk because everybody's getting breached, so it's less of a scarlet letter? I think so. Should we just list who didn't get breached this week on each of our shows to make it easier? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Joe's Bagel Shack <laughs> in Arkansas. It was a good week. <laughs> Nearly 52% of the Fortune 500 did not get breached this week. <laughs> that we know of. That we know of yet. That's the, that's the, by the way, that's the one problem is that you have to kind of go back and revise, you know, like. Well, yeah, and I'm holding some of that sort of, um commentary because i know we're talking about that in the next story but uh it's four-year dwell time is pretty interesting to me pretty interesting yeah you know the, the so one of the things that bothers me is the the books are closed on breach data for 2014 right but here we have a case where you know a, apparently a very major breach happened four years ago and so you know this that anyway it's um, I, it kind of shows some of the limitations on on how it, we in security count count things. So, anyway, we'll move on to the next story, which also comes from 
from Krebs in the title here is what Marriott breach says, what the Marriott breach says about security. Uh, so he, he takes a look at this from two different perspectives, one from the perspective of companies and the other from the perspective of individuals. And I, I thought this is a really interesting and thoughtful um, post. Yeah. Brian does a great job. Uh, obviously we use a lot of his article on the show and uh, you know, I would encourage everyone to follow his blog. Yeah, absolutely. You will you will learn a lot. And um, nobody's paying me to say that. Yet. Right. Brian, call me. <laughs> That's right. And not not for a bad reason. Um So so um you know, Brian points out the, I'd say the one thing that we've said a lot and and I think is becoming common hopefully common uh you know fair in the industry and that's assumed breach like so for an or- for an organization like Marriott you should assume that the bad actor is there because in the case of uh, of Starwood the bad actor was there for 4 years before allegedly for 4 years at least 4 years before they were detected and so that kind of points to the fact that the controls we generally have are insufficient to keep, um, I mean, A, to keep the breach from happening initially, but, and then B, from actually, you know, seeing, um, you know, seeing the activity uh, happening as it's happening. And so he, he kind of points out the importance of the, you know, what's emerging is the new, th- the new hotness of threat hunting, right? So allocating some, some of your, or dedicating some of your uh, security estate to that to that threat hunting you know make working on the assumption that the bad guys are in there and now you got to go find them and kick them out yeah and you know he has an interesting chart here of of basic through advanced organizations against their philosophy people process and technology Uh, he actually borrows this from enterprise strategy group and I like it in general. I, I, my only caveat here is that I have worked for a number of CISOs who are trying to invoke this, but they want to jump right to this. And I would caution that you can only get this right if you've got the basics right. So to get to this level of maturity, you can't you can't skip you know, steps one through four to get to step five, which is what a lot of folks try to do and try to go buy and build this threat hunting capability and these threat intel platforms, and but don't have good patch management and don't have good asset management and don't have good detection and don't have good monitoring. Uh, you, you need the basic foundational stuff in there before you can do this right. And uh, that's one thing where I think a, a lot of companies struggle is they want to get right to this, but they don't want to do the hard, boring, unsexy work of all that other stuff. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, very well said. Because, you know, that that stuff is it's boring, right? It is is boring. It looks, it looks low value and whatnot. But it is it is foundational to some of these more advanced capabilities that that you know we we are indeed having to implement now. And by the way, this you you're right. This table is really great. It's a it's a maturity table, and it talks about what you see in basic organizations, pro- progressing organization, advanced organizations across a couple of different dimensions like philosophy, where the where the CISO and, and the CISO's organization reports 
um, the maturity in aggregate of processes and then in you know technology and it's not i mean it's it's not revolutionary um i i think there's a lot of debate even today about you know the the where the CISO reports, a lot of companies will say, well, it doesn't really matter where the CISO reports. And, you know, and one of the attributes of the basic organization here is that the CISO reports into IT or the, or the CIO, whereas in the advanced organization, the CISO reports to, this, to the CEO. And, and if you don't think company politics and reporting structure doesn't matter, I, I really would encourage you to rethink that. I have seen so many times that, let's say the security organization finds something that's not that great or is a compliance issue, and they will play politics with their partner organization because they don't want to upset whomever it is that it would make look bad. And, and it starts becoming this whole – Yep. You know, trying to help their buddy or trying to maintain a good relationship or whatever uh, starts to become far more important than uh, holding a team accountable to fixing a, a key vulnerability or something like that. I've seen it over and over again. And company politics plays – because here's the flip side. At some point, that CISO might have to go to that other manager or that other leader that he's throwing under the bus with this finding and need something from them and need their help. And – that other leader is going to remember that circumstance where he got thrown under the bus. So it, it gets weird in a hurry when you are codependent on these organizations that you are auditing or trying to defend or, or need to fix things. So I, it gets interesting in a hurry uh, and it really corporate culture and, and corporate reporting structure and what matters to an organization culturally has a huge impact, I think on the success of security programs. Uh, absolutely, um, you know. And by the way, minimally, the the message as the message gets filtered. So whatever whatever message coming out that comes out of the security department ends up being filtered by the organization above it. And right, wrong, or indifferent, it that's that's just the way it it happens. And so if it's a message that's unkind to the operations of the IT department and in the security department is, uh, you know, is tucked under there. Well, it's, unfortunately, it's human nature to try to polish that up as best as possible as it, as it gets reported up the chain. So, um, you know, and, 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 you know, that, by the way, that's how, um, that's how problems, you know, just promulgate or, or, or exist for a long time because, um, you know, people don't want to you know, just don't want to <laughs> reckon with the, the the deficiencies that 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 they have in uh, you know in their current environment. So um, anyway, so so uh, otherwise, uh, in this article, Brian talks about the impact to individuals, and he he points out two realities, and one is that the bad guys already have access to all of your key personal uh, data points. So so the things that, as you said, you think would be secret, uh, but really aren't, and things including your credit card number, social security number, mother's maiden name, date of birth, address, history, phone numbers, uh, and, and he says even your credit file, uh, especially as of late after the Equifax breach. 
And then reality number two is that any point, any data point that you share with a company will almost certainly, as he said, be hacked, lost, leaked, stolen, or sold, usually through no fault of your own. And and those are just kind of the reality of living in modern civilization, I think is really what he's, he's trying to say. Uh, and, you know, he goes on to talk specifically about the um, the impact of the uh, the Starwood breach on uh, you know on, on individual victims or likely victims, and it points out that that Starwood is offering a a year's service through this Kroll service or this Kroll um, company. I guess it scans the dark web for evidence that your information is being sold, but it really can't actually help prevent anything. It just lets you know that hey, you know somebody's open. 10 new loans in your in your name the one thing that you really <laughs> that's re- a really nice boat i didn't just buy <laughs> one thing yeah. you really need to do is freeze your credit which in the u.s at least is now um it's now free you, you finally yeah it's finally free that, interestingly that took an act of congress <laughs> literally yes. to make it free uh which tells you a little something about the companies at play because they used to charge to both freeze it and thought correct um, Correct, but it is a headache. These companies, these companies that we never asked to gather all of our credit information anyway, these companies that are actually not our providers, they're providers for other companies. Correct, that's right. And we're just their product. That's right. <sighs> yeah, I, I concur, right? Obviously, and he goes on, you know, I don't want to take the rest of the thunder, but I would just say that I 100% agree with the freezing credit in the U.S. I have no idea how this works overseas. I'm sorry for those folks who are not in the U.S. Uh, we're completely naive of how it's done there because we're arrogant Americans and we suck. I'm sorry. That's right. Ignorant Americans. So. No. Okay, whatever. Both. <laughs> All right. Fine. Fine. So, it's just our American privilege speaking out. So he, you know, he goes on to point out that um, if you used your Starwood password anywhere else, you should go and change it. And you sh- not only should you change your Starwood password, but you should go and change uh, that, that the, anywhere, any place else that that password is used. And, and by the way, we've talked extensively about this in the past, but you really, 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 really should be using a unique password on every single service. And a great way to do that, by the way, is with a password manager. Yep. And it's something we've talked about so many times. Yes. And hey, if possible, use a separate username too. I know that's tough because everybody uses emails for their usernames, but the more you can limit the damage of a breach, which you have to assume will happen of your information, the better. Yeah. So so he um, he actually goes on and gives some some additional good advice. One of which I I think is um, is particularly good. You place very little trust or confidence in anything that comes to you via email, and I think that in general is a is is good advice. I would say that also applies to anything you hear on the show. Very little trust. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and then he goes on to say you should you should proactively register if you have not done so. And and again, this is very us centric advice and i i suspect similar kinds of constructs exist in many other countries but at least for those in the us 
you should proactively register yourself with accounts with the Social Security Administration, the post office, the IRS, your uh, your your mobile phone provider, and your your ISP. And the reason that's important is in the case of the post office, for example, there was a big recent flap about how uh, criminals were, um, were were proactively registering for. In the U.S., we have the the post office here has this. Um, delivery mail delivery service where they will send you an email that has a picture of a, basically a scan of the front of the mail of the of packages and, and letters that are about to be delivered and so bad guys recognize that and that that was an opportunity for them and they would go and as they pick their targets to com- to uh, commit fraud against they would um they would go and register themselves with the post office in the name of their victim who hadn't yet registered with the post office. And then they would go and open up credit card accounts. As well as maybe go and say things like, oh, look, Jerry's getting a copy of Erectile Dysfunction Weekly Digest again. Well, that, yeah. Again? Damn it. So they open up credit cards and then know when they're about to ship out. Yeah, well, it's right, and and yeah. so then they can go and intercept uh, the, you know, the the the, the shipment at the, uh, the the person's mailbox, the victim's mailbox. So they they know specifically when that credit card is going to be delivered, and so they can go and and pick it up. And you know, now now there's like no authentication anymore to enable your credit card. Like once you get the credit card in the mail, right. You know, you could just go on the on a website and and activate it, and and there you go. So it's great, With great opportunity. Part, part of the reason why I have a, a bear trap set up in my mailbox. Mm. If you don't disarm it properly, you reach in there, snap! I got Ouch! It. And then, and then I've got a new minion. <laughs> I like it. I have a lot of mail thieves working for me now. They're in my basement right now. I like it. That's uh, that's very ingenious. Mm-hmm. Very ingenious. This is a lie. Do not call the police. Okay, carry on. <laughs> uh, another another common uh, problem was IRS. So filing f- uh, fake tax returns. Yeah, big problem. That's a that's a very yeah. very big problem. Um, and and it, by one, the way, this one, one that the IRS was very slow to respond to. By the way, in my opinion. Yes. Yes. And I, and I by the way, I don't think they've fully done a great job. I mean, they they give you a pin now. You can you can set a pin, but I mean it's it's not a it's not exactly strong <laughs> authentication. So, uh-uh. um, but yeah, that th- that was another uh, another big problem was uh, uh, for a long time people could file a tax return in in the name of somebody else and claim you know very large uh, you know, a very large uh-huh. return. And have that return sent to them, and now you know it, at some point later the the actual correct person tries to file their you know the, the the real return and it gets rejected, and then eventually the IRS figures out that how you know what we you know you, the the return that that you filed was was not correct, and you know we we provided you a a refund which you did not deserve, and so now you have to pay it back. Well, the bad guy's long gone. Has you know, they're they're they have no no record of this, and it, that's a very difficult thing to untangle. Like there isn't there isn't like a a clean way. Uh, maybe there is now. I don't know, but there 
in the past there was no clean way of getting out of that it was it was really complicated yeah yeah ug- ugly stuff fortunately i've never had to deal with it yet knock on wood uh, but i've talked to some folks who have and it's it's not fun and it's years of worrying that because again you can't change your social security number in the u.s very easily i used to say you couldn't change at all but we came to find out you can it's just incredibly difficult uh which by the way i think if we could on a fairly easy basis change our social security number it would solve a lot of these problems but i think so i I think so too um funnily there was that a uh, somebody tweeted out, and I, I wish I could remember who this morning. That the uh, the chief security officer of Starwood Hotels recommends that you immediately change your mother's maiden name and your security social security number. Which uh, you know, good advice. Uh-huh. Uh, so you you know, the, I guess the one thing that uh, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit with your your last comment about cha- being able to change your social security number. It seems to me like. We are fighting an unwinnable battle when when it comes to personal data. Now is the positive lifting part of the show. Well, no, and it, it, so so I, I I guess my point is not to be defeatist. My I guess my point is it seems to me like we're trying to solve this in the wrong way. You know, he's already out of the bottle. Horses already left the barn. Well, I mean, yes, and that's always going to be the case. I mean, if you look at at Brian's two realities, you know that bad guys already have your data, and anything new that you give to a company is going to be, uh, you know, hacked, lost, leaked, stolen, or sold. And and, right. and that, by the way, is kind of true, regardless of. Um, of regulatory regime. I mean, we're, you know, we're starting to see enforcement actions kick up in, uh, uh, in Europe under the GDPR. And, you know, I, I certainly think that that will maybe temper things, but it's not going to eliminate this, right? It's not going to eliminate the problem. You're, you, you, I mean, look, companies, fairly sophisticated companies are having actors, active in their network in hostile actors active in their network for four years or more without being detected that is not going to change just because some some uh you know um country passes a law i mean that right if it were if it were as easy as passing a law we, we wouldn't be here having this podcast this this is so anyway i it just occurs to me that we're trying to solve this in fundamentally the wrong way. I don't know what the right way is, but to me, it seems like one of the aspects of the right way is we've got to make the data a lot less valuable to the bad guys. Um, you yeah. know, that fundamentally, there is no other choice. Otherwise, we are just going to spend ourselves to death and we're always going to be hemorrhaging personal data, period. Yeah, and I think, you know, somebody, some people say, hey, we just need to have stiffer fines or or steeper penalties to these companies that lose this data. I don't, I don't know if that's going to fix it, honestly. I really don't. I think there's always going to be ways companies make mistakes, and this is just a really, really complex problem uh, of securing data that you need to, to use because the flip side of this is companies need to be easy to work with, and they need to be easy to do business with or they won't make money. 
So we were talking about this on password details on the last show of, of yeah, I could force every everybody who uses my business to use triple factor authentication and it's super secure, but a lot of my customers are going, nope, not going to do that. And they'll leave me. And then where does that put my company as an example? So I don't know that I have a good answer either other than, you know, maybe we just need to fundamentally rethink how we authenticate individuals with all these different sorts of organizations and the government and businesses. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a tough problem. Yeah, it is. I mean, on the one hand, I think the the preferred solution by by many is to just not have the data to begin with, and that's certainly, I think, a realistic thing in a in a lot of cases. But but not many. I mean, you know, if you think about it, your bank needs to have a certain amount of data on you, and and that is that. I mean, you know. You, they're they're not going to forget how much money you owe them and whether your payment is late and and all that sort of thing and you don't want your doctor or hospital to not have your medical records i mean that that's that's not good and 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 i think um you, there's kind of this diverging uh, divergence on the one hand things like banking and 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 medicine and whatnot um the services that are derived from from per, you know the availability of personal data are becoming more and more valuable i mean and, and I, you know we can debate about well how sure yeah more more data can lead to amazing advances right but then on, and then on the other hand it's you know you've got marketing companies who are right. who are trying to find you know do, do you like the red ford mustang or the blue ford mustang more you know so they know which you know brochure to send you that's um you know so so i think those two those two things are are diverging but the value to data to all of these organizations is going up and up and up. And, and so, you know, I, I, I see articles with headlines, you know, that data is the new oil. And, and I, and I think about like our, my personal data flying or you know, flowing through a pipeline in, in, uh, you know, in, in Russia or, <laughs> or something like that on its way to, uh, you know, to some oligarchs. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I, it, it just it just seems to me that as long as the data has intrinsic value to a bad guy, there's there's going to be um, there's going to be people going after it, and and yeah. it's not it's not feasible to think that a the data can all, can be protected in all cases, and b that organizations are 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 never going to have a need to keep it, and and so. Um, I just it, to me it seems like we're we're fighting a losing battle, um, objectively so. And I mean, I, you know, who's who's really thinking about the you know the a, a better a better way, right? I mean, not, and I'm not I'm not talking about a new blinky security box. I'm talking about you know how do we change our society in a way that credit card numbers and social security numbers aren't so goddamn important. To, uh, That's a tall order, man. I know. <laughs> I know. 
That's a tall order. It's, it's so much momentum and so much inertia to, to keep what we have. I agree. But I'm with you. So there you have it. That's the show for this week. Um, you know, happy holidays to everyone. Um, you know, if, if that's if that's your sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> just got to slide that in there. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy your damn Christmas tree, whatever you are. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, I don't know. Whatever your candle thing is, you enjoy that too. Bah humbug. I, I, for, for, I mean, on a serious <laughs> note, I really, I really love the holiday season. So, uh, happy, ho- definitely, actually, happy holidays to everybody. <laughs> you can tell it's been a long week for us. We're cranky on a late Sunday. It's uh, right. Right, already, uh, already starting to fret about Monday. So uh, anyway, rename the podcast to Two Cranky Old Guys." <laughs> Two cranky old guys dreading Monday morning. There you go. Anyway, um, thanks for listening. You can find links to the stories we talked about on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can find the show on Twitter at uh, defensive. Se- Defensive sec, sorry. And you can find Mr. Kell on Twitter at Lurg, me on Twitter at Malicious Lincoln. Just a reminder that we also have a, um, uh, a Mastodon or you know Fediverse server at infosec.exchange. So if you're interested in experimenting there. And uh, hey, if you like the show, tell a friend. Give us some points on iTunes. Correct. There. It makes us feel good, yes. It does. We when when we're encountering soul crushing anxiety and and crippling self-doubt we can go read those reviews and think somebody likes us that's right and thank you in all seriousness to our patreon donors you guys are awesome uh, if you are interested in supporting the show you can find our patreon donation site i guess just by searching the google yep yep we go to patreon.com slash defensive sec and you know by the way this uh the show now takes 20 terabytes per month of bandwidth which is wow. which is really crazy <laughs> That is crazy. I don't even know what to say about that. So, hmm. anyway, um, yeah, it, it I, we saturate when I when I publish now. We saturate. Um, I actually had to to bring online a second ten gig server, second wow. server with a ten gig connection. Well, yeah. that's I, wow. That's all I can say. <laughs> Our humble little show. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm I'm assuming that it, you know. I was thinking about, you know, how many jails and prisons are there in this world? There's a lot, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And if mm-hmm. they all started downloading at the same time. Coma wards. Right? Oh, yes. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right? right? Yep. Hmm. You make a fine point. You do make a fine point. So, anyway, thanks, everyone. Have a good week, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.